0: well we're going to take our bibles and turn to luke chapter 9 we're going to read from luke chapter 9 verse 1 down to verse 9 if you're following along in one of our pew bibles you'll find our reading on page 866 page 866 at uh, the last time we were in luke we looked at three stories in chapter 8 jesus calming a storm jesus healing the demoniac and Jesus uh, raising Jairus' daughter back to life. We're going to move on. I said that we'd maybe stop on one of those stories at least. We're going to keep going and move on to the next part, which is Luke 9. And so we're reading Luke 9 verses 1 to 9 this evening. This is God's word to us. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal and he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter nine. We're gonna think about the passage that we read earlier on in our service, Luke chapter nine, verses one to nine. You'll find it on page 866 of the Pew Bibles. And as you're turning it up, let's pray briefly together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a life-giving word and that every time we read it, there is something new for us to learn about you and about your purposes in this world. And we pray that tonight you would speak to us, that we would know clearly what it is you would have us do as your disciples and as your followers. And we pray that we might exalt the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, through all that we say and think. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. During World War II battles in the Pacific, a sailor in a United States submarine was stricken with acute appendicitis and was near death. The nearest surgeon was thousands of miles away. A pharmacist who was on board the submarine watched the sailor's temperature rise to 41 degrees, very dangerously high. The sailor's only hope was an operation. So the pharmacist said to his stricken comrade, I have watched doctors do this operation, I think I can do it, what do you say? And the sailor gave the pharmacist permission to give it a go. In the wardroom, the patient was stretched out on a table beneath a floodlight. The mate and assisting officers dressed in reversed pyjama tops, masked their, their, their faces with gauze, just cloth plasters, the crew stood by the diving planes to keep the ship steady. The, the cook boiled water for sterilizing. A tea strainer was used as, antisept, uh, as an antiseptic cone. A broken handle scalpel was the operating instrument. Alcohol drained from, from the torpedoes was the antiseptic. Bent tablespoons kept the muscles open. After cutting through the layers of muscle, The pharmacist took 20 minutes to find the appendix. Two and a half hours later, the last stitch on the sailor's wound was sewn. 13 days later, the sailor was back at work. Everything had gone okay. It was a great accomplishment, greater than any appendectomies done by surgeons. Not because it was better, because it definitely wasn't, but because an unskilled shipmate performed the surgery. What what we see in Luke 9 is Jesus doing something similar. At the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus gives unskilled, unqualified, uneducated men the power and authority to be apostles. He gives the power and authority to do his work on earth. Jesus actually made a promise to that effect in John 14. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Well, what Jesus is saying there is that the apostles, the church, you and I as believers today, can do greater works than him. Not because they are great works, but because of who we are—frail, sinful human instruments—with the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Luke nine verses one to nine describes the apostles pre-Pentecost taste of the miraculous ministering power, the the, the greater works that would characterize their ministry after Jesus ascended to heaven. It was a dress rehearsal for the post-Pentecost gospel ministry of the 12. And in that way, it gives us some very helpful principles and points about ministry today. There are some details in this section that were specific to the apostles, but the broad principles are universal. Before we look at this passage together, let me say a word or two about where we are in Luke. Uh, last, time, last time, as I said, before the Bible reading, which was about a month ago, we did a broad sweep of the second half of chapter 8. Uh, you'll remember the three stories that we looked at, Jesus calming the storm, Jesus healing the demoniac, and Jesus raising Jairus' daughter. The, the broad point that we noted from those stories is that Jesus is Lord, Lord over creation, Lord over evil, and Lord over death. I had thought that we'd maybe return to at least one of those stories and look at it on its own, but we're going to keep moving. That's because all of those three stories are familiar to us, and it's also because of the the, the passing of time. We kind of need to keep going in this series. You'll see that in verse 1, having performed those three miracles, Jesus calls the 12 apostles together. What follows is a commissioning to be apostles. What follows is Jesus giving unskilled unqualified, uneducated men, the power and authority to be his representatives. As we look at this passage, we're going to think about three things together. We're going to see the extent of God's mission, the limits of God's patience, and the wideness of God's mercy. Let's think about that first point together. The first point will be a little bit longer than points two and three. The first point is the extent of God's mission. Look at verses one and two. It says, and he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Luke explicitly records the apostles being empowered for ministry. The the word power in verse 1 gives us the sense of capacity, energy, and force. Authority tells us that they have the right to use it. Uh, This must have been quite the experience for the apostles to receive power and authority from Jesus. Uh, Life provides us with different experiences of power. Think of a a toddler getting their hands on the TV remote for the first time. Suddenly, they've got the power to control what's on the screen, whether they know it or not. Uh, Micah is crawling a bit at the minute, and one of his favorite things to hold on to is the TV stand. When the remote is there, there's even more fun to be had. Or do you remember the day you passed your driving test and the moment that followed where you sat behind the wheel of your first car, turned the key and felt the ignition come to life? Power that you had never experienced before. Appeals into comparison with what the apostles felt on the day Jesus gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. This was Jesus' power. They possessed the power of the sender. Now, we needed to stop and see that this is the moment where the disciples became the apostles. You might think that that a disciple is the same thing as an apostle. It's it's not. Uh, A disciple is a a learner or a student. Uh, An apostle is something different. Uh, An apostle is is one who is commissioned and called by a superior, such as a king, a general in the army, or or in this case, the, the, the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord of glory. An apostle is one who is commissioned and called by a superior and sent out carrying the authority of the one who sent him. A good way to think about this is to think of an ambassador in a foreign country. In the ancient world, ambassadors would have been authorized to speak with the authority of the king who sent them. In the same way, Jesus selected from his disciples 12 men whom he would send with his authority. He gives them power and authority, but but notice what they're to do. They're to proclaim the kingdom of God. Their real work was not to heal the sick and cast out demons, as, as thrilling as that was. Their greatest work was to preach the kingdom of God. They were commissioned to preach the truth that men and women and boys and girls were invited to come under the kingly rule of God. They were to tell people of the benefits of the kingdom that were available if they turned to the Lord. They were to to preach that God reigns. Notice in verse six that it's called preaching the gospel. And they departed and went through through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Though their preaching surely had a prophetic edge and, and called for repentance, it was largely positive preaching, good news. They shared the bad news of sin But they got to the good news. Good news that the the kingdom has come. Good news, it is yours if you accept it. Notice as well some of the details and instructions Jesus gives them. In verses three and four, Jesus says, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. Jesus tells the apostles to travel light. The instructions that he gives them aren't literally meant for all who preach the gospel in every age. The reason Jesus ordered them to travel light was to avoid looking like false missionaries in the ancient world who made personal profit from preaching. Jesus also tells the apostles that there's to be no hotel hopping. They weren't to seek out better quarters, but they were to be content. Comfort wasn't to be the be-all be and end-all. One person has pointed out that comfort seekers have never done anything for christ and his kingdom a committed life is an uncomfortable life this is the extent of god's mission power and authority given by jesus to the apostles to proclaim the kingdom of god and a mission that is marked by humility that's the word that you should use to describe verses three and four humility the instructions were specific to the apostles but they point to the humility that all subsequent followers like you and me should have. It's really helpful to be reminded of the extent of God's mission, of how the proclamation of his kingdom is so vital, of how we're to humbly carry out our task. On the face of it, it's a pretty difficult task. Preach the gospel to a world that doesn't want to hear it, to a culture that's changing, to a culture that's now calling Christians the bad guys. Carry out that mission in humility when our culture exalts arrogance. At the moment, it feels like if you want to get anywhere in life, you just need to sell yourself. You have to have a a social media page that is the envy of your rivals. But God's mission for His people, for His church, is to be done in humility. How will it ever succeed, though? How will people in our area, in the breed, ever come to know that Jesus is Lord? And that Jesus is our savior from sin. The extent of God's mission is vast. So how will it ever succeed? It'll succeed in part, humanly speaking, by us having confidence in the God who provides the power and the authority. None of us are apostles. There are no apostles today. But as followers of Jesus, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and having trusted in Christ, his spirit is now in us. If only we realized the power and authority at our disposal. Now, this is likely to be one of the to, to be the first of many building project illustrations. Uh, I do promise that I'll try and keep a limit on them. I'll only mention it once a month or something like that. But this week there's been a bit more work on site, mainly pipe work. Uh, so a bit of digging and the laying of some pipes. Uh, I was talking to one of the men on site uh, who was working away at it, uh, and he was telling me that when they started the pipe work, they put the bucket of the digger in and hit something that they didn't know was there. I think it was another pipe, not entirely sure. And I had a brief conversation with him about it, and it ended with us agreeing that it would be so helpful if we knew about everything that is underground. Now, like, I'm not a builder. I don't know anything about building, but that's what we agreed. If we knew, if we knew what was underground, that would be so, so helpful. Just to be able to see where things are so that the digger bucket doesn't bump into them. Here's the illustration. If only we remembered who is dwelling in us, God by his Holy Spirit. The extent of God's mission is vast. It'll succeed in part, humanly speaking, by us having confidence in the God who provides the power and the authority. Having trusted in Christ, his spirit is now in us. If only we realized the power and authority at our disposal. If only we remembered that by his spirit he'll help us to speak to that broken person and work if only we remembered that by his spirit he'll help us to articulate the gospel in simple language to someone who has never heard it before if only we remembered that it's his mission and we're just the jars of clay that he chooses to use that's the extent of god's mission we need to keep moving Points two and three will be shorter. The second thing we see in this section are the limits of God's patience. The limits of God's patience. We skipped over verse five deliberately, but look at what Jesus says. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake the dust off from your feet as a testimony against them. Even people who don't read the Bible or know the Bible will have heard this phrase or, or used this phrase shake the dust off your feet. This isn't a phrase that that Jesus came up with. It was an idea that his disciples were already familiar with. Remember that story about Moses that we looked at a few weeks ago? He's standing beside a burning bush, and what is he told? He's told to take his sandals off because he's standing on holy ground. To this day, we refer to the land of Israel as the Holy Land. It was the land promised by God to Abraham and to his descendants, The Holy Land, when it began to be inhabited by the Hebrew people in the Old Testament, was considered sacred. Everything outside the borders of Israel was pagan, and pagans were considered to be unclean. When a Jew went on a journey that took him across the borders of Israel into a pagan land, he would be standing on ground that was not holy ground, but contaminated ground. When the Jew came back to Israel, his custom was that before he crossed back into the Holy Land again, he would stop and literally shake the dust off his feet, just to make sure that he didn't contaminate the Holy Land. Now, what's radical about what Jesus says in verse 5, is that Jesus is not telling them what to do when they go to pagans. He's not telling them about what they need to do when they go to the Gentiles. He's telling them what they need to do when they go to the Jews. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake the dust from your feet, as a testimony against them. This gesture is to be done in response to the unbelief of the Jews. And there's a scary concept here that's seen throughout the scriptures. It's that that God's patience will not last forever. So some people postpone their repentance and say, I will commit myself to God tomorrow. I will change my ways tomorrow. I will give my life to Christ tomorrow but not today. Before he was converted, Augustine, one of the early church fathers, prayed, grant me chastity and continence, but not yet. He was taking advantage of God's patience and long-suffering, but the Bible warns us that God's patience does not endure forever. His faithfulness endures forever, his faithfulness, but his patience does not. There is a limit to it, and there may come a time in a person's life when it's too late. We sometimes say that it's never too late, but after you die, it's too late. And the Bible says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. A very good illustration of this concept is seen in the story of Noah and the flood. Noah is now the most popular boy's name. I don't know if you saw that on the news recently. But the story of Noah in the Bible reminds us that there's a limit to God's patience. When God saw that the earth was completely corrupt, he, sp- he said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever. At that time, the end of God's patience had come. He destroyed the whole creation, except for the family of Noah. If you go to the book of Revelation, the angel announces, let the evildoers still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy What does that mean? Why read that verse? Well, we see in Genesis right through to Revelation that there comes a time when God gives sinners over to their sin. You can't hear the gospel and be neutral to it. If you receive it, you enter heaven forever. But if you reject it, you've hardened your heart and you're hurtling towards an eternity separated from God. There is a limit to God's patience you'd be foolish to push him to the limit of his patience. So far, we've seen the extent of God's mission and the limits of God's patience. But, but this section also points us to the wideness of God's mercy. It's that bad news, good news thing that we were talking about a minute ago. We've got to talk about the bad news, but let's also talk about the good news. When you read verses seven to nine, they don't really seem to fit with what's come before. Luke describes a man haunted by guilt, and you read it and you think, well, what has this got to do with the 12 apostles? But look at what Luke tells us, verses 7 to 9. It says, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? and he sought to see him. Have you ever had a flashback to a time when you've said or done something you'd wished you'd never done? If you could change that one thing, that one thing that you wish you'd never done, what would it be? Herod is having flashbacks, and the one thing that haunts him is what he did to John the Baptist. We don't have time for me to remind you of the full story, you should go home tonight and read Mark 6, 14 to 29. Basically, Herod married someone he sh- he never should have married. And John the Baptist told told him that. He told them that quite a lot. The lady Herod married didn't like that. And she was out to get John. And after a little bit of time passes, Herod has a, has a blowout of a birthday party where his wife, wife's daughter dances for him. And he tells her that he'll give her anything she wants. And she says, that she wants John the Baptist's head on a platter. So instead of having cake served at his birthday party, Herod is served with the head of John the Baptist. And that's what haunts him. He killed an innocent man. And now Herod is hearing these stories about a miracle worker in Galilee. Uh, And he's listening to what people are saying, the official government analysts, the ordinary bloggers. And he's thinking, surely not. Sure, Surely not. Is, is this John? Is this Elijah? It, it can't be. Well, what Luke's recording here isn't just filler. It, it does fit with what has come before. It fits and makes sense because what is happening with Herod is a result of Jesus' divinely organized apostolic ministry. Luke tells it so artfully. He tells us about the effects of the apostles' preaching and ministry through herod's eyes they're out preaching the kingdom this is what's happening with herod and herod can't understand it he doesn't know what's happening herod represents the entire population of galilee who are asking the question who is jesus who is this man is he john is he elijah or is he somebody different this is where all apostolic preaching ultimately went this is where all New Testament church preaching should ultimately go, to Jesus Christ. Herod and the people under his rule are wondering, who is Jesus? Who is he and, and where has he come from? Is he the, the son of God who has come down from heaven to save sinners by, by dying on the cross? Well, yes, he is. What, what this little anecdote about Herod tells us is that the apostles declared the wideness of God's mercy and it made people wonder wonder who Jesus is, wonder why they were bothering to go to the lengths they were they were willing to go for, for a man they'd only just met, and who would be dead within a short space of time. Do you know, that's our job here in church. That's your job as you go out into another week, to declare the wideness of God's mercy so that people stop and ask, well, who is this Jesus, and where can I find out more about him? The extent of god's mission we go into a new week conscious of the extent of god's mission he wants people to hear the gospel and as his followers he provides us us with the power to speak for him if only we realized the power and authority at our disposal the limits of god's patience we've seen that sometimes people will say i'll get right with god tomorrow it'll i'll do it tomorrow but not today But the Bible warns us that God's patience does not endure forever. His his faithfulness endures forever. He's, He's forever faithful. He's not forever patient. And the wideness of God's mercy. The apostles declared the wideness of God's mercy. And it made people wonder. It's our job to do the same. We go to our task at the beginning of another week. Conscious of who we are. Unskilled, unqualified people who have been given the power and authority to point people to the person who has saved us and changed us, that should fill us with renewed confidence. That should fill us with renewed vigor for the task at hand. There are people that we know and love who are hurtling to a lost eternity. Why not pray this week for opportunities and for God to help you by his Holy Spirit to speak simple truths into someone else's life? doesn't have to be a systematic theology it just has to be about Jesus what what if you're in that position tonight hurtling towards a lost eternity well let me finish in this way I find Herod one of the most fascinating characters in the entire New Testament because he because he toys and he plays with the religion and he toys and plays with Jesus but he never comes to faith in this section, you might think that he's a seeker. He wants to talk about spiritual things. But as we read on, we find that he's not an honest seeker. His his intentions aren't all that honest. Luke 13:31 tells us that Herod wanted to kill Jesus, but his spiritual journey comes to a really chilling end. An absolutely chilling end. Jesus ends up standing before Herod. Pilate had interviewed Jesus after he was arrested but found no guilt in him. Pilate sent Jesus to Herod because Jesus lived in Herod's jurisdiction. And Herod was absolutely delighted with this. Luke 23, verse eight tells us, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. But then listen to this, the very next verse. Luke 23, verse nine So he, Herod, questioned him, Jesus, at some length, but he, Jesus, made no answer. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. It's chilling, absolutely chilling. Because Herod is a real life, historical, actual person who lived and breathed on this earth. And he's an example Of someone who experienced the patience of God running out. Jesus, the most loving man who ever lived, made no answer. Silence. He he didn't speak. He didn't encourage Herod to trust in him. It was just silence. The silence that Herod experienced from Jesus that day was a foretaste of the silence from heaven that he would experience When he fell into eternity. It's chilling. So tonight. Don't play around with this stuff. Don't play around with. And don't toy with Jesus. It's such a dangerous game to play. And in playing it. You're opening yourself up to the possibility. Of experiencing the silence of heaven. Now. And forever. Turn to Christ tonight. Not tomorrow. Not the next day tonight let's pray together lord we thank you for this passage and we thank you for the reminders that it gives us for the principles that we can hold on to we thank you for this reminder of the extent of your mission that we are to go and we are to tell other people about the Lord Jesus and about how he has saved us and changed us. We realize that there is a limit to your patience, though, and that there will be times when even we have to shake the dust off our sandals and and walk away from someone or a situation. But we pray tonight for those who aren't trusting in the Savior, that they would not test the limits of your patience, and that they would look to the example of Herod, who experience the silence of the saviour the silence of heaven and we pray that herod's example might point them to the urgent need of trusting in christ not tomorrow not the next day but tonight father bless your word to all of our hearts and we pray these things in jesus name amen